Lord, we just sang and prayed as we were singing that you would speak till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. God, you build your church through your word. It is through members of your church speaking the truth in love to one another, building one another up into maturity in Christ. And God, unless you speak, everything that's going to happen from here on out means nothing. So would you come, God? By your spirit, would you speak through your word and would you give faith to those who hear? Lord, you are our hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been around Redeemer Lane for the last number of years, this is your first time, welcome to the end of the year. At the end of the year and at the start of a new year, we always take two weeks and we preach on the Word of God and we preach on prayer. It's our way of setting aside the end of one year, the start of another year, to be able to reorient our hearts to the Word and to prayer. It is no understatement, overstatement, that's the word. It is no overstatement to say that prayer and Bible reading are two of the most important things that Christians do. They are not the only things that Christians do. Christians are called to do many, many things in this world. We are called to walk in all sorts of good works. But the word and prayer are what shape those good works. They are what inform the way in which we approach those good works. They are how we depend upon God and are empowered by God for those good works. So it is right for us to take time in order to look at the word and to look at prayer and to be able to orient our minds and our hearts because as we will see in this sermon, our theology, our understanding about the word, our theology and understanding about prayer shape the way in which we practice Bible reading, practice prayer, the way in which we approach the Christian life. So we end a year and we start a new year by looking at the word and prayer. Today we're going to be looking at the Word of God, and specifically, we're going to be looking at how people come to believe and see the Word of God as the Word of God. How does someone come to believe that the content of this book is true? That the message that is preached based upon this book is real and true? How do they come to love and embrace the Word of God as the Word of God? And to see this, we're going to be working through the verses we just read in 2 Corinthians 4. And the main thing that we're going to see is the title of this sermon. God gives assurance of His Word. God is the one who gives assurance that this book is true. God is the one who shines light on the truth, opens hearts to receive it, so that you come to a knowledge that what I just heard is true and real. God is the one who sovereignly and supernaturally opens blind eyes to see and embrace the truth about his word. 
Okay, so I just gave you the answer, right? That's, that's the answer to the question of how does someone believe the Bible as true? God makes it happen. But I need to show you how this comes about. And that's what we're going to be doing from 2 Corinthians 4. And we're going to break this section down into just three parts. The first part is the ministry of the word. That's verses 1 and 2. The second part are the spiritual realities behind unbelief. Spiritual realities, what lies behind unbelief. And then third, we're going to look at spiritual power for faith. So the ministry of the word, spiritual realities behind unbelief, and spiritual power for faith. So first, let's look at the ministry of the word. But before we do that, we need to look at some context. Our passage begins with what word? The word, therefore. Right? If you're reading the Bible and you see a therefore, if you're reading anything and you see a therefore, you need to understand what therefore is therefore. You're jumping into the middle of an argument. What Paul is saying is that verses 1 through 6 flow from what he's been saying before this. Because this is true, because this is happening, therefore this is true. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is highlighting the nature of the new covenant. The nature of the new covenant. Pastor John mentioned this in his prayer. The new covenant is the promise that God says, I'm going to take this law that's outside of you, and I'm going to write it upon your heart. I will give you a new heart so that you will believe. And in chapter 3, he uses an illustration of Moses. This is coming from the Old Testament. Moses putting on a veil. So Moses goes in and he sees God and his face shines and it terrifies people. And so when he turns and reads the law, the words of God to the people, he covers his face with a veil so that the people can bear to stand it. Because so glorious is God that even the reflection of God's glory brings fear to unbelievers and to terror. Paul shows that as an illustration of what's going on in the hearts of the people of Israel. When the law is read, a veil lies over their hearts, he says. But when this veil of unbelief that's the image for the veil, unbelief. When it's removed by the work of the Spirit, someone turns to God. Listen to what Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 3. You can just look up a little bit in your Bible. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the, the gracious work of removing the veil of unbelief comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. And that sets up the context for how Paul is going to approach his ministry, the ministry of the Word. It flows from that confidence that God is doing a work by his Spirit to remove the veil of unbelief. Look at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul's here is talking about his own ministry. So you see the we there. But what he says is applicable, it applies, to any form of word ministry. Because it's based upon theological truths that aren't restricted to a particular person. So what he's saying applies to you when you are reading your Bible in the morning. It applies to you when you are doing family devotions at the dinner table. It applies to you when you are sitting over a cup of tea or a cup of coffee and sharing the good news of the word with your friends and with your neighbors. This is talking about word ministry here. And the way in which Paul approaches word ministry should also be the way in which we approach word ministry. So how does he approach the ministry of the word? Well, the first thing that he does is he doesn't lose heart. Do you see that? Verse 1. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We're going to see in a bit, there are many, many reasons from a human perspective why we can be discouraged. Why we can lose heart. But the reality that the sovereign God removes the veil of unbelief And that that same God empowers his people for the ministry. That he appoints them for word ministry. Gives Paul confidence to keep going. He doesn't lose heart. The Corinthian church was a mess. He was dealing with all sorts of problems. Paul himself was regularly persecuted, afflicted, beaten, mocked, scorned. If anyone had a reason to throw in the towel and go home to turn their back on the life of following Jesus, the Apostle Paul had earthly reasons for it. But he didn't. He didn't lose heart. And knowing this, that God is the one who empowers through his sovereign work of grace, approaches the way, shapes the way that Paul approaches ministry. He sets up a contrast, a wrong way to view the ministry of the word, and a right way to view the ministry of the word. First, he shows the wrong way. In verse 2, he says that he renounces, that is, he refuses to engage in. He's not going to partake in all in this sort of ministry. He refuses to engage in disgraceful, underhanded ways. And he goes on to explain, I think, what that means. What does it mean to engage in disgraceful, underhanded ways? Well, it means practicing cunning, being deceptive, trying to be too clever twisting a little bit, or tampering, changing, manipulating the word of God. Paul says, I am not going to engage in this. I refuse to tamper with God's word. I refuse to practice cunning. A few Christmases ago, I think it was 2021, 2020, I can't remember, It all blurs together post-COVID. But a few Christmases ago, my parents ordered Christmas gifts for our kids. And one of the gifts that they got was a soccer or football goal. My kids were wanting to be able to play soccer a bit more. And so we wanted to set up this little portable football goal for them to kick it into. And so my parents discovered that they can buy Christmas gifts on Amazon AE. And they can ship them to our house. 
Thus started the tradition of getting boxes and boxes and calls and calls from Amazon in December because my parents have bought many gifts for our kids that way. But the thing is, my parents weren't used to shopping on Amazon AE. Amazon AE is a little bit different than Amazon.com, the U.S. store, in terms of the standard in which those selling things are held to. Right? So they weren't used to buying, and they fell for the classic mistake of trusting what the picture showed in order to order the product. They didn't read the description, I don't think. They saw this happy child on a lawn of green, probably a nice house in the background, kicking this full-size soccer ball into this beautiful soccer goal with joy on his face. And they said, that's what I want for my grandkids. So they ordered it, they shipped it. But when I opened it, first I wrapped it, then I opened it, our kids opened it on Christmas morning. We look and I'm like, man, this is going to be pretty impressive if a full-size soccer goal fits into this box. We set it up and the soccer ball was about the size of a tennis ball. And the soccer goal was smaller than this music stand. It was completely unusable. I think we threw the ball at each other for a little bit, but you certainly couldn't kick it. I mean, you had to have significant soccer skills beyond what me or my kids have to be able to score on that goal. What happened? The seller on Amazon AE knew, or thought, that if they manipulated the image, they changed it. No one's going to want to buy a soccer goal that's this size. But if they change the image and blow it up or replace it with something else and show this happy child kicking this soccer ball into a full-size goal, that people might think, I'm getting a fantastic deal. I mean, I get that for this price? Yes, please, let's buy it. And at least my parents, it seems, fell for it. They thought that if they changed the image, they would sell more products. Some people approach the Word of God that way. We think that it's not sellable, so to speak, on its own. That instead, we need to change things to make it more palatable and appealing. We read parts of the Old Testament, and we think, man, people in 2024 are not going to be able to handle this. So we minimize it, we twist it, we overlook it. Or we read parts of the New Testament about Jesus being called the Son of God. And we think, my friends and neighbors are going to have lots of issues with that. I mean, that really challenges. They're not going to be able to handle that. So let's see if we can find a better translation for Son of God. We read what the Bible teaches on homosexuality, or on gender, or sexual immorality, or materialism, or covetousness. And we seek to minimize it in order to win more people to Jesus. We see what the Bible says about God's wrath. And we think, no, that's not going to work. But just like manipulating the size of an image leads people to purchase an unusable goal, manipulating the gospel leads people to trust in an unsavable Jesus. He cannot save if he is not the real Jesus. The right way to minister the word is what Paul says next. By an open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. 
our preaching to others, our word ministry to others, takes place before God. God sees the way in which we handle his word. Our word ministry takes place before his eyes, and so we preach the plain, clear, biblical truth boldly before all people. And we trust that God is going to be the one who takes his word and applies it to people's hearts. Paul moves on in verse 3 to show exactly why it is foolish. It is foolish to think that changing a few things, softening the tone, overlooking some things in the Bible is going to lead people to believe in the truth. And this is the second point that we see, the spiritual realities behind unbelief. The spiritual realities behind unbelief. Look at verse 3. Paul says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Behind unbelief lies the spiritual realities of sin and the spiritual realities of Satan. Unbelief is not merely a problem of the mind. It is not merely an intellectual problem that needs to be solved like a math problem. It is a sin problem. Unbelief is a problem of the heart. Satan here is called the God of this world. That doesn't mean that Satan is an actual God. It's talking about the authority that he has under the sovereign God of the universe. Paul's saying here the same thing that he says in Ephesians 2. So Ephesians 2, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's talking to believers who once were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There are similarities here between 2 Corinthians 4 and Ephesians 2. The gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. That's Ephesians 2, 3, children of wrath. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. That's Ephesians 2, 2, where the sons of disobedience follow the prince, the power of the air. Paul is showing that behind the scenes of what we can see with our eyes, there's far more going on. Unbelief has spiritual realities shaping it and informing it. What does it mean that Satan has blinded the eyes of unbelievers? He's blinded them. Well, that term, has blinded, shows up in one other place in the New Testament. It's in 1 John 2. This is what 1 John says. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So it's not that he is blind, but something has blinded. In 1 John, it's not Satan. It's darkness, which leads to the question, why are people in darkness? Why does darkness keep people from seeing? It's not ultimately because of Satan, though he plays a part in it. The reason that darkness blinds people's eyes 
The reason that people find themselves in darkness is because people love the darkness. They're not there against their will or against their desires. Listen to John 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Satan does not ultimately cause blindness. He compounds blindness. He accentuates blindness. He tempts us towards greater blindness. But the reason that we are in sin is because we want to be there. Our hearts are slaves to our sin. We don't see because we don't want to see. John Piper puts it well in his book, A Peculiar Glory. He says, we are not chained in a dark cell, longing to see the sunshine of God's glory. Not in a cell, longing to get out. We love the cell because sin and Satan have deceived us into seeing the drawings on the wall as the true glory and the source of greatest pleasure. Our prison cell of darkness is not the bondage of external constraint. It's not chains and handcuffs. Our prison cell of darkness is the bondage of internal preference. We like the darkness. The darkness keeps us from seeing us as we truly are. Blindness is a matter of the heart, not chiefly a matter of the head. Unbelievers can follow the arguments of Scripture. Some of you know this. The Bible's written in human words, right? Human words follow a pattern of grammar, logic, reasoning. You can sit down and you can study the Bible with somebody, and someone can say, yes. I believe that that's exactly what it says, but I hate it. I don't believe that it is true. I think John's mentioned this before in a sermon, but when John and I were in seminary, we took an intensive on the Hebrew uh, Zephaniah. So we used the Hebrew in order to do exegesis to study the book of Zephaniah. And we used a commentary that was the best grammatical commentary on the market. It helped you to follow the argument of Zephaniah better than any other commentary that our professor had encountered. And so he had us use it. It was very helpful in trying to understand the flow and the grammar, to understand when this word can be translated here, should it be translated this, or should it be translated this. It was a very, very useful commentary for understanding the argument of Zephaniah. But here's the thing. It was written by a non-Christian. This person did not believe in Jesus. They did not believe in the hope that Zephaniah had. They did not believe that Zephaniah was the word of God. They believed it was a classical text that is worth studying for the beauty and the argument, just like Shakespeare is worth studying. Just like Homer is worth reading. He could understand the flow of the argument with his mind, but he did not embrace it with his heart. Your unbelieving friends may be like this. They may listen to you explain the gospel, 
And they may say, I can see why you believe that. But I don't believe it. I don't think that's right. This is the spiritual reality behind unbelief. Our sinful desires, Satan's influence, keeps us from loving what we see. And this is the folly of trying to manipulate God's word, trying to tamper with the truth. If you think that changing a few words, softening the tone, using the right technique, will cause people to receive the word, then you have greatly misunderestimated what you're up against. You are up against the God of this world who blinds people. You are up against people who love it when he does that because they love the darkness. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. And mere logic, argumentation, techniques, saying the right words alone will not do it. But this doesn't mean that it's hopeless. And that's where Paul ends this section in our third point. The spiritual power for faith. Look at verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sin and Satan are real. Paul does not lose heart. Why not? Because the God who speaks and causes universes to come into being is the same God who speaks through his word and creates faith and belief. He causes light to shine into the darkness. The work of Satan is nothing compared to the work of God. The God of this world is crushed by the God of the universe. God sovereignly created this world through his word, and he sovereignly opens blind hearts to embrace and love his word to give knowledge of the glory of God in the face of his son. Imagine your house is completely in the darkness. It's dark outside. Your house is completely dark. Your heart is that house. It's dark outside and you like it that way. Why do you like it that way? Because you can't see the water stains on the ceiling. You know, some of us have them in our house where the water drips and drips and drips and the concrete kind of spreads. We can't see the cracks in the wall. We can't see the filth on the floor or the bugs that are there. Darkness is comfortable for us. We can just enjoy being in the dark in our own pleasure and not see the filth and the ugliness and the stains. And if you happen to be tempted of, maybe I'm just going to turn on the light here and let some light in. Maybe I'll just open the window here. Satan is there to keep you from doing that. But then one day, one day you hear the word of God and the light shines bright. Kids, have you ever tried to close your eyes and look at the sun? Is it dark or is it bright when you do that? It's bright. Your eyelids can't keep out the light of the sun. When the light of the gospel in God's glory shines forward, it doesn't matter how dark your blackout curtains are. They're not going to keep it out. 
It's going to shine. And all of a sudden, you're there, and you see every bit of filth, every bit of dirt, every crack, every water stain, every bug in your house. And you recognize how ugly it truly is. But you also think, the one who can show me that must be more glorious than anything. That if he has the power to illuminate, he has the power to change. You see the beauty and the glory of the God of light who can wash away the deepest stain. As the word of God is preached in his sovereign grace, hearts are opened to embrace and to love the truth. We need light to see ourselves for who we truly are. You can hear the Bible talk about sin and think, yeah, I understand that Christians believe that, but that's not me. You can hear the Bible talk about grace and say, yeah, I understand that Christians believe that, but I think I still need to be a good enough person to get to heaven. It is only when the light of the gospel shines through the effectual power of God's word that your heart says, I need this. I love this. That is me, and that's exactly what I need. We need God's word to show us who we are. The way in which people believe the word of God is true. The way in which people come to embrace the word of God as the word of God is through God giving assurance of his word. He is the one who convinces our hearts. He is the one who convinces our minds to embrace the truth. And this theology of the word shapes the way in which we practice the ministry of the word. It shapes the way in which we engage in the ministry of the word, whether it's with our families, our church members, our neighbors, our friends. Theology shapes practice. Knowing that people come to embrace the truth of scripture through the sovereign work of God is going to affect the way in which you approach the scriptures. Paul gives an illustration of this already. Verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Paul is not a master of the word. It is God's word. He is a servant of the word. And therefore, he dare not proclaim himself, but rather Christ Jesus. We are stewards, not masters. We are ambassadors, not kings. We have been given a message by the Almighty God, and so we speak clearly and plainly, knowing that it is his power that backs us up. The ambassador doesn't go into the city and say, hmm, these people aren't able to handle this message from the king. I better change it. I better modify it. When he does that, he loses all authority and all power to be able to speak on behalf of the king. He speaks from his own authority. The ambassador goes into the city and says, this is the message from the king. This is what you need to receive, what you need to believe, what you need to trust in order to be saved. God will defend his word. God will take his word and open hearts to believe it. We don't need to change it or tinker with it to defend it. One pastor used the illustration of the word of God being like a lion. So kids, if you were to fight against a lion, who would win? You or the lion? The lion, right? What if your dad was to fight against the lion? Who would win? The lion. 
What if your mom and dad were to fight against a lion? The lion. Right? What if like five of us went and fought against the lion? The lion's going to win. Right? The, the, the idea of saying, oh no, I need to defend this lion from attack is foolish. The lion looks and thinks, where are your claws, bro? Where's your teeth? Where's your roar? You got like pink fleshy stuff all over you. Like you're going to get pushed over like crazy. Saying that we need to stand and say, oh, I need to defend this word. I need to change things. I need to tinker with things. Is like saying to a lion, get behind me. I got this. The lion just needs to be unleashed. And it will defend itself. Do you believe in the power of the lion of the word of God? Does the way in which you use the word of God show that you believe in its power? Or are you thinking, I don't think this lion's going to be able to do it on its own. I better give it a little help. Are there things in the Bible that you're fine talking with your believing friends, but you're not fine talking with your unbelieving friends because you're ashamed of them or embarrassed by them? Are you tempted to change or soften the clear teaching of Scripture based upon what culture around is saying, regardless of what culture it is? Brothers and sisters, there are some hard things in Scripture. We don't minimize that hardness, right? When we say there are some things in the Scripture that are both difficult to understand intellectually and difficult to wrestle with emotionally. But rather than the instinct to change them, to soften them, to do away with them, Rather, we hold fast to them, knowing that God is the one who gives assurance of his word. We don't tame the lion or cage it. People come to know the truth as truth because God causes them to see and to live. And this reality affects how we approach the ministry of the word. It affects the way that we share the gospel, whether to our children or to our friends. We we can't make people believe the gospel. We can't argue people into the kingdom. Getting loud and getting angry and shouting down to our friends is not going to persuade them in their hearts. Beating them down is not going to work. Bribing them is not going to work. Giving them promises to believe that aren't made in the scriptures is not going to work ultimately. What's only going to work in saving our friends is clearly laying out the gospel. Now, we use human wisdom in saying how we approach it. We say, okay, you're, this seems to be an objection for you or a struggle for you. Let's go there. Let's talk about this. Let's wrestle with this. But at the end of the day, we depend upon the word. We don't think, mm, this person can't handle this yet. I'm going to avoid it. We lay out the truth of the scripture with an open and bold proclamation and trust that it is God who opens up eyes to be able to see. This reality also affects the way in which we read our Bibles. One of the ways that we link, or one of the reasons we link Bible reading and prayer together is because if you believe what we've been seeing in 2 Corinthians 4, then you will approach your Bible reading saying, I can understand this, but I can't make myself love this. I can journal till I'm, my hands numb But I can't love what I see unless God comes and opens up my heart to embrace the truth. And so what do you do when you're faced with that reality? You pray. You pray. For years I've been helped by an acronym, I-O-U-S, 
Whenever I approach Bible reading, I don't always do it, but often I pray this, seeking after God. And it's taken from the Psalms. We read one of them today. Incline my hearts to your statutes, God, and not to foolish gain. Open my eyes to behold wondrous things in your law. Unite my heart to fear your name and satisfy me with your steadfast love. All of those are prayers at a desire level. I'm asking God to break through my cold heart and to satisfy. To take my heart that's inclined toward foolish things and to incline it to himself. To take my eyes that are blinded by the things of this world and to open them to see wondrous things. I'm asking God to do things in my heart because I can't do it on my own. Understanding the argument is worthless apart from a love of the truth. And so when we read our Bibles, we pray that God would help us to love it. And then finally, this affects the way in which we view God himself. We worship a God who is glorious, who is bigger and more fierce and more powerful than we can imagine. He really is our entire hope. We are utterly dependent upon this God. And the fact that he is merciful and gracious, full of love, is the best news in the world for us. Because he can satisfy us with his steadfast love. He can turn our hearts towards himself. He can make us embrace that which is life itself. So we don't have to hide in the darkness. We don't have to ignore the stains. We can see them and be changed. That's what God does through his word. So as we end this year and begin a new year, may we feast upon God's word together as a church. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. We need you to come. Lord, help us to love your word. Help us to love it in the remainder of 2023. Help us to love it in 2024. Help us to love it as truth itself for the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.